לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet, talking to you from the nation's capital, Ottawa, Ontario, recording this at my mom's. Got the poppy here, November the 11th, this week, Remembrance Day. It's a big day in Canada. With me, as always, my good friend, Rabbi Barry Chesler, and Salma Shekhtar, Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky of Congregation Anshay Chesed, New York City, This is an amazing Parsha, Vayetze. Vayetze is filled with movement and filled with naming and filled with lots of different kinds of tangled relationships. We'll get right into it. Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Sheva, Vayelech Harana. What happens to Yaakov when he leaves? I'm turning to you, Jeremy. Tell us what happens. And tell us specifically about the naming that goes on. So, so Jacob, you remember at the end of the last Parsha, having stolen... Or, or exploited, or whatever you want to say, he's, he's gotten the means of his father's blessing. Esav is chasing him out of town, so his mother and his father send him to Mesopotamia to marry one of his cousins, and that was the end of the last Parsha. Now he leaves, he leaves the nest where he's, he's been raised, and he turns towards Haran, the major city which today... Uh, is in the southern tip of Turkey, right above the Syrian border. And I've never been there, of course, but I hear it's a tremendous archaeological site. And um, and in the, one of the interesting pieces of the name is that in Aramaic, Kharana means the other one. And the word for the demonic in Kabbalah is the Sitra Akhra, the other side. And the Zohar, much is made that he leaves the place of order, Eretz Yisrael, and he goes towards the demonic side. He has to he has to go out into a world that is going to be very dangerous and frightening. And and of course, this is true. The, the place of his 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 time in Mesopotamia will be very fruitful. He will come back with four wives and a bunch of children, but he will also have survived lots of dangerous, uh, you know, daring, dare, uh, nasty, dastardly deeds. By his father-in-law, we, we say in the Haggadah, you know, uh, the, the line from uh, Deuteronomy, Arami Ovedavi, the shot of that line, the simple semantic meaning is my father was a wandering Aramean, but the way we read that midrashically is that Arami Ovedavi, the, the Aramean, Laban, tried to kill my, my, my ancestor Jacob. So this is a scary place. So this is the first encounter that, that we see with Jacob, Jacob as a character, on his own. And um, I guess the way the way I picture him is he's really got nothing. And this is quite unusual. And it sets up a real contrast between him and the other uh, traveling that took place between Canaan and Haran, that, that was the, the servant who came with a whole caravan of camels. We don't have that with Jacob. We barely even have him going with, with uh, food. But we do know that he has a flask of oil. And we do know that that flask of oil is significant in terms of 
the the motif that really accompanies uh, Jacob throughout his life, and that is Barry, uh, the rocks. Okay, but before we get to the rocks, I just wanted to suggest one thing that. When Jacob leaves Beersheba, he's leaving the future. That was where his father and grandfather both lived at various times. And he's going back to the past, which is where Abraham came from, from Haran. And I think that what we get in the opening scene is this idea that Jacob leaves Canaan with nothing, but he actually has a lot more than he thinks. Because the place he happens to lay his head to rest is a place where he will have a vision of God. And he will wake up stunned by the realization that God was with him all along and he was totally oblivious. Um, he yes, says, Elliot. I say, okay, so I, I made a, a, a face here, you know, because, because even when he anoints the thing and, and consecrates that place, he he praises his vow in a in a very strange and conditional way. Vayidar Yaakov neder lemor. Jacob made a vow saying, "Imiye il Elohim imadi." If if God will be with me, Ushmarani baderachaze and keeps me on this way. Asher ani holech ani anoki holech on the way that I'm going. Vinatan li lechem lechol uveged dilbosh. And if he gives me bread and clothing, v'shavti v'shalom. And if I return in peace, El Beit David to my father's household, Vayad and I leave Elohim. That's that's a big tall order. Okay, I think that Jacob is actually a better theologian here than the rabbis. Okay, and I, I think that what we have to keep in mind is that God is probably understood as a local, or at best, a national God. So when Jacob is leaving his homeland, Canaan, he might be leaving God behind him. He doesn't know if God is going to be able to accompany him. And he knows he will only come back if, in fact, he will find food and clothing to sustain him while he's away. You know, it's a great, it's a great theme because the idea of the local gods or gods accompanying, that's something that's going to figure much later. I don't even think we're going to get to this with Rachel and the local and her trafim, which is a way of really trying to demonstrate the accompaniment of the household gods with her. But I would say that, by the way, I'd say that this is shot, or at least Rashi takes it to be shot, and I think it's at least a good guess that that's the meaning of the angels going up and down the, the ladder, that he's leaving the place, and so the the Eretz Yisrael angels have to go back up to heaven, and the Chutzla Eretz angels, the, the, foreign, the foreign dwelling angels, have to come down to support him. And I think that the the image of well there's a way to read the vow which is not that if you do all that stuff then i'll consider you my god but if you do all that stuff and prove that you're my god then i'll give you the the the, the tithe um but I, I do think that this that this adds to the feeling that this story is quite like open-ended we don't know what's going to happen is he going to starve to death you know is he going to have clothes and food to eat or is he going off into this scary zone? And we'll see what happens. All right. Can you give me your best take on Vaikra et Shema Makom Ahu Beit El Vu'ulam Luz Shema Ir Lavishona? It had been a city of losers, <laughs> and now it became the house of God. So he named the place Beit El, and it was formerly known as Luz. Okay. So who lived there? A bunch of losers. <laughs> 
Well, and I think we also have to understand Beidel quite literally. It was a house of God. It was a local shrine. Okay. But he didn't know that. But Jeremy, you were saying that, you know, there is yeah. something about the, the uh, attribution of names that, that is distinct to him, or maybe not. I mean, you want to just take well, that? The, the whole parasha, and then, and then again into the next, um, the next parasha, when Jacob wrestles with the angel and gets a new name, you know, this, this whole section of the Torah is really very significant about the names that people have. Uh, there's naming of places at the very end of uh, this parasha. You will get the only Aramaic in the Torah when Jacob and Levan make a deal, make a pact. And at the place, Jacob gives the place the name Gal Ed, the pillar of witness. And Levan calls, calls it Yigar Sahaduta, exact translation into Aramaic. So they named that place. And here we have the name of place Beit El. It's a little bit confusing, by the way, because you sort of want it to be Jerusalem, but Beit El is north of Jerusalem. Yeah. So Rashi, if I remember correctly, not I didn't I didn't look it up now, but I think that he tells this complicated story, like the 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 base of the ladder that he sees is in Jerusalem, but it's at an angle, and so the top of it is connected is it corresponds to Beit El where it hits heaven. Um, so slightly confusing, confusing passage. But then the, there's the naming of all the children, and the naming of the children. Uh, is, is a significant expression also of the meaning of those individuals' lives and the meaning of the parents' lives. Uh, Leah gets to name her children. Rachel gets to name her children. They get to name the children of the... They're all named by the women. There's one child, though, who's not named. And that is Dina. She's okay. just given the name. It's not explained. And when we get to chapter 34, we'll see that, in fact, she was a judgment on the family. Interesting. Okay, but before we get there, let's go back. So after he had this, this revelation, this dream, he picks up his legs and he goes to the place of the East. And, and, you know, often we like to say, what makes the Torah great? It's great storytelling. It compresses, you know, 400 miles into four, well, it's more than 400 four miles. It's, it's about, you know, 800, a lot of, it's, it's a long distance into it's a, a whole, while. It's a while, right? And, and all of a sudden, a journey of maybe a week, two weeks, he, he, he ends up, and he ends up, it's, uh, it's the light of day. He sees there's a well in the middle of the field. Three flocks are hovering over it. We get this kind of determination. We understand that he's figuring this out. This is the well that they use. And the rock is big on the well. All right, pick it up from there. He's going, and then all of the flocks are there. And Yaakov has this, this really uh, amazing encounter with the people there. He says, Achai, man, bro, hey, where are you from? Where are you from? And they say, we're from Haran. And they say, he says, well, why does he ask that question? He's trying does to he figure out where, where he is. Does he not know where he is? There, you know, he doesn't have a map. He doesn't have Google Maps. He doesn't have a GPS. He doesn't, the only thing that he knows is what his mommy told him. Because his mom is from that place. So that place must be populated with things that he 
you know, landmarks that she may have placed in his mind. I, I have no other way of imagining the situation other than him saying, where am I, you know, going, talking to passers-by and saying, you know, how close am I to, to Haram? I, I, I never, you know, every story in, from the ancient world, you know, I'm just, I, I'm so, my, my limitations of imagining how people got anywhere and knew anything and wrecking, like, they walked hundreds of miles and the only thing that he remembers is that his mother and, and his father sent him off to go to Padana Ram. This is the end of last week's parasha. Uh, and go to Padana Ram, go to the house of Bituel, your mother's father, and take a wife there from among the daughters of Levan, your mother's brother. And they send him off, and he goes to Padana Ram, and he walks to Mesopotamia. And I just, as we're sitting here, I just went up in my went up in my Google Maps, and I discovered that Haran from Amman, Jordan, okay, a little bit farther, is... Is 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 like eight hundred and eighty-six kilometers, seven hundred and some around eight hundred kilometers from Amman. So throw throw another another few kilometers on there. He's gone like hundreds and hundreds of miles, and he asks, says, "Hey, do you guys happen to know someone named Levi?" And they go, "We know him." Of course, that's right, what like the Bible great. <laughs> you say you're from New York, and they say, "Oh, maybe you know so and so." Yeah. I'm, from, I'm from New York, <laughs> but they from New the, Jersey. You know Elliot Malamitz? <laughs> yeah. It's, what's amazing is that he says they say, "Yeah, we know him." Yeah, and here's his daughter, Verachel Ba Imatzon, <laughs> right? Good onomatopoeia. She is coming with the sheep. Ba with the the sheep, and I, you know, I, if you'll permit me to 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 propose my little interpretation here. I think these guys are waiting for it because they know she's she's babe. She's she's really she's really beautiful, and they're and I also think that there's a reason why they're waiting over the well. It's very strange this whole story. Why why they can't have access to the well? You may say that it takes more than one person to to move the stone that's on the well. The stone was big on the well, and and I agree. Although, for we see in the next scene that Jacob single handedly moves the stone. So it's not beyond the strength of one individual. So there's another reason why the stone is there. And this, the reason is because people cheat in this area and they don't want unfair access to the shared resource. And if everybody is there, even during the height of the day, everybody will be able to govern the allocation of the resource in an equitable fashion. And the reason why that happens is because there's one character hovering off stage right now who is really quite a manipulative um, and dastardly uh, cheat, and that's Levon. So you really think his name is quite ironic then? Absolutely. He's, he's like Dr. Like what, in Breaking Bad. What was he called? Dr. White. Oh, Walter White. Dr. No, White. No. Walter White, yeah. Walter White. You know. Eisenberg. <laughs> right. Because, you, know, you, you know, it's an ironic thing. The Levon is ironic. There's no Levon here. He's all dark. Uh, you know, I, well, whatever. I, I, the problem, <laughs> we talked about this before we started recording. Like, one of the reasons that this is not grabbing me here is that your explanation requires two things to be deposited about the same society. One is that it is extremely sneaky and two that it takes pains to make sure that it's extremely equitable How, the, both of those things don't go together so well i bet you and i don't know not being an ancient shepherd myself 
I bet you that in wells, there are rocks to, to, to cover them over to prevent barrier proposal. We were talking before, you know, some, some contaminants fall into it, a dead body or something like that. Uh, I think that there are probably just covers on wells. And ordinarily, it's a really big thing and it requires multiple people to cooperate. But Jacob, when he sees Rachel, demonstrates his enormous strength and macho virility that he can do this all by himself. And by the way, it's a perfect match for all of the patriarchs and matriarchs, or the most important ones. Abraham's great deed involves feeding strangers. Rebecca's great deed involves watering the camels of a stranger. And Jacob's great deed involves taking the, the stone off the well and giving water to all the flocks. This is a beautiful, repetitive, tight pattern that our great patriarchs, they demonstrate their greatness by their kindness, their generosity in, in giving people sustenance. So I want to say something in defense of Elliot. I think he makes too much of the cheating aspect and not enough of rules development. That in fact, it's a primitive society and they're still working out the rules. So they understand that resources have to be allocated fairly. It's not that they're concerned with cheating, but we all know that left to our own devices, we'll take a second piece of pie before everyone has had the first one if we can. And so we need we need some rules and they're starting to work out these rules now. This is the way, middle just, just, this is I, the middle I, I forget the name of the uh, I forget the name of the writer, but written up in the Times this week and there there was a they have an op-ed in the Sunday section. There are these two folks who've written this this uh, new, like one of these big histories, like gun, germs, guns, and steel, but the history of Homo sapiens. And they posit, interestingly, not as the typical story has been, that you know, once the agricultural revolution happened, uh, some people got wealthy and exploited, and and then inequality was introduced. Um, in you know in the ancient in the ancient city, which is which was made possible by agriculture, and then and the great extremes of of wealth and and poverty were created at that time. They posit that actually ancient cities, at least some of them, uh, were much more equitable places. Truthfully, when I read somebody interpreting archaeology, I'm like, what are you talking about? There's a building. You don't know what its function was, right? You you're making some stuff up. But in all events, their claim was that there was much more in the ancient city, much more uh, attempt at, at, at equity. And so that does fit what, what, what uh, Elliot was saying. What I'm saying is, and I, and I think, again, it, it has to do with the fact that there's, there, this is the middle, we're in the Middle East, man. This is, there's, if there's one thing that everybody needs, it's water. And if one, there's one thing that everybody needs to share, it's water. So, you know, I, I'm putting a layer of theft and stealth and cheating over this because I know hovering in the background, there's a, a, a thief and a cheat in the background. And, and, and there's these characters that, that I want to kind of flesh out. And I want to say, you know, these, these shepherds, they're, they're waiting for one person. They're waiting for Rachel because they, they, that's, when it, that's when the watering can happen when everybody's there. She's at Lavan's daughter. Uh, there's a reason for all of this. Okay, but put that aside. So, so the the fact that Jacob basically impulsively says, "What the hell is going on here? Right? Why are you waiting here?" Like, and and then single-handed lifts the rock off the well. Not only defines himself as a person of great strength, but also defines himself as, "I'm not going to listen to your stupid orders. I'm not going to play by the rules here. I am. I'm going to go outside the rules." And and I think that that's. 
you know, such it's, it's an inviting subtext for Jacob because he already has not played by the rules and he doesn't want to play by the rules. And when he goes to Lavan and, and, and they bring him uh, and the, to, to meet Lavan, he says um, in that beautiful line, Ach atzmi uvisari ata. Behold, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And you are nodding to that, Jeremy, because you know some truth in that. What, what is he saying there? Oh, I think, I think that he is exactly saying that they are birds of a feather, these two. They are, they are matched sets of tricksters. Exactly. Well, okay. So I think if we want to play nice, which we do occasionally, rather than say that Levine is a trickster, he's a businessman. And he's trying to conduct business in a world that is somewhat hostile. And therefore, you have to do things in order to make sure that you protect yourself and your family. <laughs> so this, this is exactly this is exactly you know uh, uh, a certain cantor from Long Island sent us in some questions to Parshatalk at gmail.com. Anyone should feel invited to do the same about the deception in this story and when is it okay to to engage in deception? Do you do you always have to use sneaky means to get a good end. Our story about Yaakov from last week, our story about Yaakov and his mother, Rebecca, is that, yeah, um, you know, means fair or foul. You gotta, you gotta have the blessing go in the right direction. Certainly can't, certainly can't let Aesop be the, be the uh, inheritor of the covenant of Abraham. But now it's going to come back to bite Jacob because just as he had a, had a, uh, a sibling switched identity to deceive somebody who couldn't discern. That exact same thing is going to happen to him. And Levan is going to pull off the same trick. We're going to think that Levan is sneaky, but Levan is actually giving Jacob exactly his own medicine. So, you know, is he a businessman? Uh, is, is it not possible to be a businessman who is, who is not sneaky? Uh, I don't know if it's possible or not, but it isn't true in this case. He's both, trying to show who is sneaky. Possible. He's well, what to you're suggesting, Jeremy, is that in the scene with Rachel and Leah, when he gets married, Jacob becomes Isaac. But by the end of the Parsha, when he acquires all of Levan's flocks, he's actually become Levan. Okay, that's great. He's let, become, let me, let me interject here and say that I, I think that, that he, he's really, in this moment, he's saying, he sized up Jacob, he's saying, your bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, we, we're this. We're we're cut from the same cloth, okay. But I want to show you who's boss here, okay. And it reminds me of this great hockey anecdote. You'll appreciate this since I'm in Canada. As we know, I'm calling. When in. Bobby Orr was a rookie, okay. Bobby Orr was the greatest player, okay. And he skated faster than anybody else. And one game was the Detroit Red Wings against the Boston Bruins, and he was. I up remember against, that one. He was no. up against Gordie Howe. And he was two years old. <laughs> he was trying to out outplay Gordy Howe and you know come up against him. And then finally Gordy Howe just gave him an elbow in the face. And he said <laughs> he said to Bobby Orr, welcome, welcome to the other show. To the other show. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 this is the point. The point is that you know Yaakov is smart, Yaakov is conniving, Yaakov is a cheat, and Lavan is his match. And in the moment that he replaces the beloved Rachel with Leah, he is really outsmarting uh, Yaakov. 
um, and saying, you know, welcome. So justly, in a midah k'nege midah way, a measure for measure way, because Jacob is getting his comeuppance for the deception that he has practiced. And he is going to, but in the end, by the way, I mean, I don't know anything about uh, uh, about um, uh, Gordy Howe and Bobby Orr, but uh, Jacob actually wins. And I love what Barry just said about Jacob becomes Isaac, and then in the end, he becomes Lavan. When there is the next level of deception, the sort of magical animal husbandry thing that happens at the end, that Jacob practices to um, to turn all of the sheep into speckled or spotted, whatever it is, when when he makes the deal with Levan, he says, okay, you can keep the, the akudim, nikudim, ubrudim, and I'll keep the white ones, you keep the brown ones. Jacob manipulates the color of the sheep. I mean, it's it's impossible to, to think of what it is that he's doing, but whatever, in, in the Bible's terms, it works. So he takes a makel livne, which they translate as a poplar, a poplar uh, stick, livne, sounds like Levan, and what does he do? He makes white strips. So he turns all of halavan, revealing the white or revealing the lavan. So in the course, in the course of it, I, I think Barry's great, great observation, Jacob in his full lavanness, sneakiness, disreputable, he's actually the master. And so Carol asked us earlier, Barry's wife Carol asked us before, you know, when is it okay to steal? Is it okay ever to steal? Um, the Midrash wants to say that Jacob wants to say, you know, if, if you're going to deal with a disreputable person, you have to, you know, you have to uh, uh, play them at, at their own game. You know, im chasid tit chasad, be righteous with the righteous. The im, what's the phrase? The im var you know, and, and, and would the scoundrels be a scoundrel? So Jacob is exactly that. Um, and finally, Carol also asked us about the phrase, Vayignov et was the phrase. He steals the heart. The Hebrew, he, the Hebrew phrase, classical Hebrew phrase for deception is genevat da'at, to steal the mind, or genevat halev is what we get here in, in, in uh, Genesis. To steal, to steal the heart. Um, this this is a parsha of lots and lots and lots of stealing from from the deceptions that went on, but to the specific phrases about stealing the heart, stealing the sheep, and then stealing ultimately. Uh, Jacob says to Levan, by the way, "Gunavti uh, yom, gunavti laila." I was my days and nights were stolen away from me. I was working so hard for you, and then ultimately, with story which we're not going to get to probably is that Rachel steals Levan's idols. She apparently wants to hang on to those idols of her childhood from her childhood home. Okay. That so enabled Levan to make an idol threat. Uh, let me, let me ask you this question. And we, we had some conversation about this too, which is there's a lot of pathos here regarding the relationship between the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. There's a lot that the, the, the Torah is drawing our emotional attention to this, their lives together. And I'm wondering just, you know, as a setup for this, you know, this family comes to you for therapy, family therapy, and or, you know, first react to this, react to the pathos of these women and their, you know, here are three adult male rabbis, but we have enough empathy and we can see 
that there are there's something going on here that's that's really quite tragic quite there's there's emotion and there's there's a lot of pain jeremy you want to tell us about the pain here oh my goodness this leia is one of my favorite characters because because of her suffering um it opens up the heart to read about her you know just try to place yourself in the mind of the older but less successful sister you know her younger sister her younger sister is beautiful so beautiful everybody wants her attention um you know jacob just takes one lays eyes on her and it's just love at first sight and what happens levon says well in our rule we don't give away the older before the younger younger before um, the older. You don't give away the younger before the older, exactly. Uh, unlike, by the way, exactly what Yaakov had pulled off in his own hometown. In our place, he's Levanza sneakily. Um, we don't give away the, the younger before the older. So here's what I'm going to do. Leah, honey, I know nobody wants to marry you. But I'm going to... No, no, nobody in their right mind would ever want to marry you. But what I'm going to do, don't you worry, honey. I'm going to trick somebody into marrying you. Oh, my God. That's just got me agony. Jacob Jacob is mad the next morning after having spent the night with his new wife. And one can 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 have to guess, like, either they just kept all the lights out, they, they extinguished all the cameras, as, as the midwife said, or they got him good and drunk and he didn't know. And he wakes up in the next morning and he has just slept with his new wife and he discovers it's not the love of his life, Rachel. It's her, it's her you know, undesirable older sister. And he says to her, oh, what the hell are you doing here? Oh, my God, the, the agony that must have been in poor Leia's experience is just unimaginable. It's, one, it's, it's really one of the most implausible stories of the Torah, okay? And a difficult story. But, but let me offer two twists here. One is that he actually likes having the multiple wives, okay? Because one wife ends up being the wife of procreation and one wife ends up being the wife of companionship, shall we say, okay? And that follows a certain typology of multiple wives in the Bible, uh, Sarah Hagar, Sarah companion Hagar, procreator, and uh, Hannah Penina, the wives of Elkanah, El uh, Hannah, the, the, the companion Penina, the procreator. Uh, so there may be something there but let me, let me pose this one to you, which is that maybe he really wants Leah to, and maybe he knows the situation. I, I, I know it, it's, a, it's a stretch beyond the elasticity of most of our imaginations, but, but he's got a mission, and the mission is to, to make a nation. So he's got to start pumping out kids. And, and is there something that he saw in the two sisters in the month that he was there without reward, without recompense or salary, did he, he fixed his mind on Rachel, but maybe he thought, yeah, get two for one here. I don't know. I think that that's one of your wonderful misreadings. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to suggest something else, if I may. And that, you know, it's instructive that Rachel, her name means sheep. Yeah. And she's a shepherd. And there's a certain hardness to her that's embodied by her name. She goes out to work. Leia is described as Rakot, soft. And, you know, I kind of picture her as an image that one used to portray the farmer's daughter who did all the right things, but no one looked at her. 
And that's the kind of person that Leah is. She's not the shepherd because she's the domestic. She's working at home, as it were. She doesn't go out to the pasture. And yet she is able to produce half of Jacob's sons by herself. More than that. Well, not by herself. That's correct. Um, The other religion says that you can do that by yourself. Um, (laughs) Well, Leah, but, you know, we were talking a little bit before about the names. Every name of a child draws attention to a fundamental unhappiness. And the idea that she wants to have a kid so her husband will love her will give her the attention, not just that she needs, but that she deserves. Totally, totally get correct. the idea, every time she brings a, a son to Jacob, he says, okay, thank you. It, Let's this, move is, on. This, this is totally correct. And this is the heartbreaking thing. But Leah also goes on a, a spiritual journey of herself. Because the first one, you know, the first one is Reuven, ki ra'a Adonai be'onyi. Call him Reuven, see the son, because God has seen my uh, uh, now my husband, now my husband will love. Then she gets pregnant again. God has heard, so she calls him Shimon because God has heard my suffering. This time, this time, this time, finally, my husband will, will join up with me because I've given him three children, and it never works. Jacob is is obtuse. He's unloving towards her. He's he's just not nice. And finally, she has a child, and she calls him uh, Yehuda. Hapaam et Adunai. This time, I will thank God. I will ha- I will find gratitude in my life, and not think that one more child, one more child, one more child will finally change Jacob. It's like it's like the therapist says, you know. Your, your, your loved one, your husband is not going to change. He's not going to change. And he doesn't change. Interestingly, by the way, you know, the, um, of course, I think it's fair to say that uh, we are inclined to think that society, uh, socially speaking, males exploit females sexually. Males commodify female sexuality, turn it into something to be controlled, bought and sold. There is a purchase of sexuality in this parasha, but it's not by a man of a woman, it's the other way. When when Ruvain finds these mandrakes, which is like some sort of aphrodisiac or some sort of, um, what would you say, uh, uh, some aid to fertility, aid to fertility or whatever, um, uh, Rachel um, wants to buy the mandrakes uh, because she wants the, the useful aid to fertility. So she pays, um, uh, Leah sells the mandrakes to her for Jacob's sexual services. And it's very clear. And that's why Yisachar, whose name means business or purchase, Sachar, reward. reward. Yeah. Um, that's why he's named Yisachar, because that's the, because she paid for Jacob's sexual services for that night. Rachel, being the beloved wife or the companion wife, as Elliot said, seems to be in charge of doling out who Jacob is going to have sex with. Yeah. Which, which well, I, I have to add something before, before we continue. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about Lavan and Yaakov before, and we often overlook the generational difference. That Lavan, for obvious reasons, is old enough to be Yaakov's father. And Jacob, I think, 
a potential to change. In other words, he acts in ways that we find wanting in this Parsha and elsewhere, but he can grow out of these things, I think. And it leads to a further observation that, you know, in the later biblical law, a man cannot marry two sisters. And the proof, if one needed it, is the story of Rachel and Leah. And the reason why we need the law, of course, is because everyone who finds themselves in a situation where they're attracted to two sisters is going to say, oh, no, I can make this work. And the law comes to say you can't. That the law speaks in a way that it curbs some of our impulses. And the rest of the Torah really comes to teach us how we're supposed to behave not like our ancestors embrace sheet. So that's that's a good way to kind of put the bow on this. We 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 we're running out of time here, and we're we're kind of leading up to to next week, which is you know following all of these different challenges that Yaakov faces, including the challenges of building his family, the challenge of the relationship between his two wives, his four wives, uh, and his challenge with his father-in-law, which he gets to resolve, and he creates the boundary moment. And it's precisely after this boundary moment that that he now has to come back and face what is waiting for him in Canaan. And that's where the Parsha leaves us, I think, you know, with this kind of anticipation as to what will happen next in his life. We, we, we've read the story, we know what's going to happen, so spoiler, no spoiler, but, but um, we're ready. We're ready for a new Yaakov here. And I think um, as, as we conclude this, we see, um, you know, all of the different things that he's gone through, uh, the way that he as a character has grown and the way everybody has really grown with him. The family altogether has become quite substantial. And there's a sense that we're ready. We're ready for something. Something has changed here. I don't know if you concur with that, but uh, we're ready. We're ready to conclude this uh, edition, I think. We've been enjoying having this, this conversation and debate <laughs> and being with you. And we want to thank you for for doing that and spending some time with us as you get ready for Shabbat and listen and watch us. We're so appreciative. And if you have comments, we appreciate them. Last week we had some great comments on, on uh, Toldot and, and of course uh, we welcome everything you have to say. In the meantime, from Ottawa, Ontario, I want to say Shabbat Shalom and see you next week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.